Welcome to the Housing Hour with Kevin Ray, a locally produced program devoted to bringing you a fresh perspective on housing, diving into the issues that matter most. The Housing Hour with Kevin Ray is presented by Mortgage Investors Group. Now, Kevin Ray. Welcome into the Housing Hour. This is Kevin Ray. I am your host, and I'm here with our executive producer and co-host, Mark Griffith. And we are excited about our show today. We are looking forward to this week. Of course, most people have already turned it in for the year, honestly. (laughs) I hate to say that, but some people get into the mood of holiday season. And we're excited about the holiday season. We're going to have a show today that's going to help you get ready for Thanksgiving. We're going to learn about some things that uh, might be interesting to you. I know I know they were to me um, because obviously we want to know what Thanksgiving is all about. What is Thanksgiving? Why do we give thanks? And get into some specific details about really the people who founded this country and, and how they really came over on the Mayflower and what these early settlers, these pilgrims, had to deal with when they were building their communities. And I think that's a, an amazingly interesting topic uh, as we lead into this Thanksgiving season. And a lot of people are thought, calling it Thank Christmas or Thankmas, Thankmas, because it kind of all blends into one. And uh, Mark, you were mentioning before we started that, you know, pretty much everybody's in Christmas mode as soon as Black Friday's over. Right. It's in Christmas mode. And Thanksgiving force. is, you know, it right. happened like five weeks ago. Uh, it feels like that, you know. So, you know, we're excited about that. And Mortgage Investors Group has been helping American dreams come true for 25 years. And so we couldn't be more excited and more thankful than we are this year, mainly because of that gratitude that we want to show to our clients and our referral partners for all that they have done for us over these 25 years. Chuck Tonkin and Chrissy Ray had an idea 25 years ago, and by really the strength and, and the fortitude of many people, it was all started with those two and their vision. And, and over the last 25 years, we've been able to create something that we're very proud of and thankful for. Um, and it's all because of our clients and, and our, our listeners and the people who make MIG possible and our employees. We're, we're extremely grateful to those um, who started and who are continuing this company. We started with seven employees on November 6, 1989. Now we're near 300 employees going strong and over uh, $13 billion of American dreams realized, over 93,000 clients, and uh, we're the number one lender in the state now, officially. Mm -hmm. So um, those things we're excited about, we're grateful for, and um, we're really wanting to give back, and that's what we're doing. So um, right now, we're going to bring in our guest. Our guest is Matteo Brault. He's um, actually a blacksmith, uh, is what he is. And we just want to thank him first. Let me bring you in, Matteo. Thank you for coming in today. Hey, thank you so much. It's a real honor to be here. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. And I know that uh, the work that you do is very important to you and what you all are doing. If you don't mind, before we get started, let's let's just give our listeners kind of the 30,000-foot view of what Matteo does and what, what really your passion is and, and when we talk about the early days and what it took and and what you're doing. And let's talk about that. And your website as well, for those who are listening, is Plymouth.org. It's P-L-I-M-O-T-H dot O-R-G. But go ahead and give us that that 30,000-foot view. So uh, Plymouth Plantation is a living history museum. So its mission is to bring uh, 
really history to to life, so that you can interpret, uh, you can interact with uh, costumed uh, interpreters who are all historians. They all know uh, the source materials. They're archaeologists. They're craftspeople who are all trying to uh, flesh out history for us to uh, really explore in ways that expand from a from a book. Mm-hmm. You know, the ways that, that you really can't get from reading books or, or studying. So it, it's really, the mission is to uh, really allow people to step back in time. That is truly amazing. I love going to places that history is being retold and not in a fictional way, but they're really trying to get to the facts like Williamsburg as an example. It's a lot of fun. I love that place. Yes. Williamsburg, as far as blacksmithing goes, uh, Williamsburg has the best program in the country. Yeah. Uh, we, uh, we're probably recruiting you. I would say, huh, Mateo? (laughs) (laughs) Yep. I'm sending out my resume. (laughs) That's right. You're taking your official visit this weekend. We, We, uh, we love them. Well, that's great. Well, I, th- I would imagine in your all's industry that the fact that you guys are a Smithsonian Institute affiliation, I guess, affiliated with them, and you have those programs available. So clearly, you know what you're doing, and, and you've been given the rubber stamp. And um, But I would imagine in, in your all's industry, you know, the very most important thing is having factual kind of things in your program, I would imagine, correct? Uh, absolutely. Uh, we don't speculate. Uh, we we try not to make too many uh, educated guesses. Mm-hmm. We we rely on the source material. Thankfully, the what what sets Plymouth apart from other colonial ventures is that they they really kept good firsthand accounts. Mm. They wrote down things that happened to them. Not only did they, but there were foreigners and other visitors who also described the colonial venture at at Plymouth. So. One of the reasons why uh, Plymouth Colony is as fascinating as it is is because there's an extensive written record from the settlers, uh, and that's pretty unique. Well, and also I think of our history, let's say um, we are, what, 20, you know, 2,000 plus years into um, A.D. here, and, and you think about that's really not that long ago in terms of the sequence of our entire you know, existence, I guess you would say. And so, it's true. It's yeah. very true. 2020, the year 2020 is our 400th anniversary of the Pilgrims right. landing. Yeah. Yeah. That's like toddler years, really. You know, <laughs> I mean, much. I mean, if you think about it, so the firsthand accounts that the written record, which is obviously the best records that you can have, the firsthand accounts, I think are, are vitally important. Um, when people, when I said Plymouth, Plantation. Some people think the spelling is P L Y M O U T H, but your all spelling is different. Yep. Tell me why you, why that is. Maybe so that we can just understand it. Sure. So the the modern town of Plymouth that I work in now is is spelled P L Y M O U T H, and the reason why Plymouth Plantation is spelled P L I M O T H is because in the 17th century uh, in English, English doesn't have uh, a formal uh, dictionary or glossary there's no formal organization of spelling mm-hmm. so people spell words the way that they uh really any way that they see fit there's over 40 different spelling like my son actually my son does <laughs> that he's six years old that's exactly what he does yes yes it, yeah. it's basically just people who are literate 
Uh, right. They just spell things out phonetically, however mm-hmm. they see fit. Well, that's interesting because I think it's I think it's a neat spelling of it actually. And one of the other things um, is plantation. The word plantation in the South, there's a different connotation when you say plantation, but sure. in your neck of the woods, that has a different meaning, doesn't it? It does. It does. It's an English. Uh, the plantation is an English extension of uh, culture. There, a plantation is a settlement. Uh, a colony and and it does have a different connotation from the south uh from the southern uh vernacular right but uh there are plantations in ireland in the 17th century there are plantations in newfoundland there are plantations in scotland it's and also bermuda it's it's a different concept a different idea but the the idea of it is to to colonize to spread spread their culture. I was reading through the About Us section of your website, and they're talking about seven decades of living history. And I would imagine, as we have here, um, a lot of times, if you if you go to a certain part of, of our state, you might see an, a reenactment of the Civil War, for instance. And you may sure. you may get to talk with people who are in costume, and you know they literally don't come out of character at all. Do you guys have some of that? available for people to be involved with maybe at certain festivals i'm just speaking maybe out of turn here but is that Uh something that people could experience oh absolutely here at the museum we have uh we have four major sites so we have the english village which is Uh a recreation of of 1627 plymouth and it's peopled by uh 30 uh costumed role players who are all uh in character i love it and then uh, there's the native site, which is a, a re- really a, a, a recreation of a traditional Wampanoag uh, home site. Right. And the interpreters there are, they're not role players, they're modern natives. Mm-hmm. And they interpret uh, modern native culture while being in uh, native garb. I, I think it's amazing because if you think about what happened there in 1620, I guess it was, and you had these two cultures that collided, right? Yeah. And when they collided, you know, it, it really was one of the first that, that I know of. I'm sure it happened in other areas and other parts of the world, but it's the only that I was taught as a child. Um, and, and understanding that dynamic between these two, I mean, you thought you think about the, the house that you just mentioned, I cannot pronounce it. What was the name of the type of home that the Native Americans had? Uh, they, they call them uh, Wetus. Okay. So you had that, and then you start looking at what the pilgrims built. And, you know, obviously they're very different in, in architecture and so forth. But also that the home that f- was for the Native Americans, it was was the woman's home. It was the mother's home. And, and it was it was given that title, and, and that's because she was going to bear the children in that home. And... She was also going. Those children were going to be the future of their people. Yeah, and yeah, then you look at the, the you look at the pilgrims. The they have a different are, philosophy, are I guess. A matrilineal, so they follow a a matriarchy where women are the uh, the purveyors of of ownership. It's different from the West, where almost every Western culture is a patriarchy, where where uh, men men own and transfer wealth to each other from mm-hmm. father to son. So it was different in in the other culture you spoke of. I mean, that is that is yeah, like day yeah, and night. But, I mean, I I'm not entirely sure about the Wampanoag, but I, I'm 
I'm confident a lot of the tribes along the eastern seaboard were uh, matrilineal, meaning mm-hmm. that women women hold property and and um, heritage and genetic descent is traced through your mother or your grandmother. That's very instead interesting. Of, instead of through your father, like for example, the Vikings, where Leif Erikson is the son of Eric the Red. Mm. Um, that's a different, and and you're absolutely right that Plymouth. One of the reasons why Plymouth is set apart from the other colonies and the other museums is that uh, Plymouth is one of the few examples worldwide of two cultures uh, living side by side and, and being at peace. And, mm. and there's peace for 70 years, by the way. Yeah. They, do, they do eventually go to war, and that, that results in the King Philip's War. Yeah. Is but that for seventy yes, years? I getcha. You have two cultures that are uh, living side by side and getting along, and that that is very rare in mm-hmm. the study of human history. We can't even go seven years without going to war. <laughs> yeah. no, 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 that's good. I mean, uh, Mateo, we're going to be back in a segment because we we're running out of time on this segment. But we want you to stay with us, and we'll continue sure. to talk about these two cultures and talk about the history, uh, really, and also of, of this incredible. Um, organization, the Plymouth Plantation. You can find it at Plymouth.org. It's P-L-I-M-O-T-H.org. I mean, wow, you can go do all kinds of things there. You can go and stay there. You can explore. You can experience and learn and just do all of these things. It's really an amazing place. And I, I'm sure you could even get married there if you wanted to. So yeah, we're gonna we we're gonna talk about all of that. We're gonna give you more information. Stay with us right here on the housing hour. The Housing Hour with Kevin Ray continues, helping you understand what is really going on out there and what to do about it. Again, Kevin Ray. Welcome back into the Housing Hour. This is Kevin Ray. I am your host. Again, I'm here with uh, Mark Griffith, our executive producer and co-host. And uh, we are getting ready and priming up for Thanksgiving. Um, Hopefully you guys are going to uh, have an extraordinary week uh, here and get your work behind you on uh, Wednesday evening and uh, have a wonderful Thursday, Friday, until New Year's Day. (laughs) I'm just kidding. Um, But anyway, we're just so thankful for everybody coming in and to our listeners. And um, real quick, before we get back to Mateo and uh, Plymouth Foundation, do need to tell you all about Scott, uh, Scott Higgins. And, you know, we've had a pretty cold couple of weeks here. And it's really just been a, a wonderful transition. The thermal envelope is sealed at my home. And for you all that don't know what I'm talking about, um, we had uh, Scott Higgins with Prudent Energy System. He's been on our show many times. He came out. He audited our house from an energy efficiency standpoint. He sealed our house. And then we implemented some of the solutions into our home. So we have had just an extraordinary kind of uh, display of energy efficiency since we had those solutions implemented. And I think it's incredible. The comfort of my home just the other night, for instance, when it was really, really cold, was extraordinary. Um, and it's it was very cold. I mean, we're talking about it felt like 10, 15 degrees outside. So give them an opportunity. You can find them on our website. It's Scott Higgins, PrudentEnergySystems.com. All right. Well, we're back in here with Mateo. Mateo Brault, he's with, uh, he is with the, the site, this name of the company or the, the place where we're talking about is Plymouth Plantation. 
And the, the website is Plymouth.org. It's P-L-I-M-O-T-H.org. And it's really a very user-friendly site. It's a very nice site. Um, you can go there and learn more about what they do, more about what we've talked about. Uh, also, we'll have that up on our website as well. You can subscribe to their e-newsletter and learn about all the things that you can um, participate in. And we were talking to Mateo, who um, Mateo is a, a craftsman, a blacksmith, I guess you would say. And and he is the person that's representing the company, telling us a little bit more behind the curtain, what it's all about. And we're talking specifically about back in the 1600s, 1620, when the Mayflower, you know, the Mayflower arrived in December of 1620. Am I correct? That's correct. Okay. And it got kind of a rough start. They were trying to figure out who was going to pay for it and, you know, all of that that's in the history books. But it didn't get out of there till September, which was fairly late in the year. And now they're talking about Virgin Airlines might be able to get us to Europe in 30 minutes in the future. Well, this <laughs> took like four months. Yeah, 90 days, I think. Yeah, three months, you know. And when they arrived, Mateo, this is what I want to bring you in. When they arrived to, uh, you know, America and they stepped foot on, on soil, you know, it wasn't as if people were coming out and grabbing their bags and checking them in the hotel and getting them a cocktail. I mean, they had, right. to, they had to build their home. They did. They had to build everything. So talk talk us through what it was like for that beginning pilgrimage, that pilgrim of, of 1620. So the best way for me to describe it is just that it's it's it would be something that really very few of us will ever experience or will ever need to experience. It, it would have been very, very brutal. Hmm. And uh, it's a testament to how tenacious these people were. Mm-hmm. All, all of their faults aside, and they do have faults, uh, they're incredibly tenacious, and they create a civilization where there literally is none. Other uh, than the Native Americans. Yeah, their own they, civilization. And they, what I mean to say is there, there's no Western civilization. Right. And uh, these guys are, uh, they're hardcore, um, they're really, really, really hardcore. And in the very beginning, they stay, uh, they use the Mayflower basically as a, as a, uh, launching point. So they sleep and live on the Mayflower, but they work on the land to, to make houses and to make what they call common houses. Mm-hmm. And those are just basically great big, uh, warehouses. Uh, I mean, not very big by modern standards, but right. These people have to house uh, a little over 100 people. Right. So, well, they had 11 built, I think, in the second year I read on your site, which which would be those types of homes I'm imagining. That's right. And we in my uh, my department is the historic arts and trades department, and we're we're in charge of building and maintaining the entire English village. Wow. And uh, one of our interpretive points is that uh, those first few houses are uh they're going to look different than houses that are built a few years afterwards mm-hmm. uh they're limited in a lot of ways by the weather uh by their materials uh, the fact that half of them die that first winter half of them ha- just wow. about half their number die which is probably yeah. what allowed them to survive i hate to say it like that but you know you had so many people that were sick from the voyage from the three months on, you know, and, and there was a lot of people that were having to care for these people. I'm sure it was, like you mentioned, 
tenaciousness. You have people dying all around you of God knows what, and they had to they had their eye on the prize. Mark published again on our site the written kind of stuff that you had. Talk about what you wrote, because I want to plug it in here a little bit with what you, and and go ahead and share with Mateo what you wrote on our website. Well, what I found interesting, Mateo, was that um, when they came over and left Dolph Shaven and they had their voyage over here and how tough it was, and when they first landed, what we're talking about in Cape Mm -hmm. Cod, they missed their mark and landed in the wrong location and that's how they they started arguing on board and they came up with the mayflower compact as a way of uh, appeasing everybody and making sure that they had structure so that's where my article kind of jumped in from uh, what really led to the mayflower compact and how what maybe influences uh, were uh, generated uh, from other sources that helped generate the Mayflower Compact. So that's where I came in. But it was just fascinating mm-hmm. to me because once they got on soil, then uh, they had the Native Americans, Massasoit. Uh, what was Massasoit? Was that yep, his Ma- name? Massasoit. That's right. Massasoit is a, it's a, something that we've learned is that it's actually a title that is similar to a king. Yeah. Uh, his real name is Usamequin, which means yellow feather. Now, was this Pocahontas' his father? No, I'm <laughs> no, just kidding. No. I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> no, but, you know, they, but it's, a, it's a great story. So my question is, when they came over, after they came off uh, and, and started building it, did the natives uh, help them uh, build? Or, I mean, because no. they, they didn't do anything like that, did they? No, no, they, they did not help them build. Um, the, their first encounter is actually really interesting. Uh, they... The Pilgrims first land uh, on the coast of what's called Provincetown today. Mm-hmm. And that's at the very tip of Cape Cod. Wow. And they landed there first, or at least they sent an expeditionary party onto the beaches. And those, those men, uh, about a dozen of them, they were searching uh, and really just checking the place out. And they saw uh, on a distant beach a group of three a native man and a native woman and a dog. They wow. saw them walking down the beach, and when the natives saw them, they ran into the woods and called for their dog. And that was the first time that they saw natives. Uh, now, later on, when they're uh, in the modern, uh, when they're in Plymouth, and they're scouting out the location they're building, they're building houses, a native man walks into town. He's wearing a red coat. His name is Samoset. And Samoset is not, he's not a Wampanoag. He's not one of the local natives. He's from, he's actually from uh, the Penobscot in Maine. Uh, no one really knows why he's, he's even there. But that's who he is. And he says to the English, he says, uh, I believe he says, welcome Englishman. Or hello, Englishman. In English, he can speak some English from from his time uh, trading with English fishermen and, and tradesmen. Wow. Maybe Jamestown? So, would he had any... Uh, inf- no, I guess that was gone by that time, wasn't it? Uh, Jamestown did begin before uh, before the Mayflower landed in Plymouth, but uh, I, I doubt that Samoset would have gone that far south. Um, he, he probably learned some English pieces of it uh, just from the extensive uh, English fishing fleets 
that were off the coast of Maine and Newfoundland. They had been going to that area for over 100 years prior to 1620. Let me ask you a question because I know our listeners are dying to ask it, and I'm going to ask it. The gentleman who you said his name was Masai, what was it? Massasoit. Uh, Massasoit. Is that what Massachusetts comes from? Uh, no, uh, Massachusetts okay. is the name of one of the tribes that lived to the north okay. uh, around uh, the modern-day uh Boston Harbor, uh, they, they controlled where modern-day Boston is. Okay. So the, the state of Massachusetts is named after them. Okay. And then the second question, the gentleman with the red coat, what was his name again? Samoset. So since he did a lot of traveling, is that where the name Samsonite came from? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. I, I just don't believe so. Okay. <laughs> I just wanted to clear the air on that. All right. So let's, let's back up a moment because most kids today... Like, for instance, I'll just speak about my kids. Their first kind of knowledge of, um, you know, Western or Europeans and Native Americans is Pocahontas. I mean, let's be honest. That's their first representation. And so what it appears from that movie is, is that John Smith comes in there and he's looking all dapper. And he's coming in there swinging and, you know, and taking Pocahontas and all this. And then, but it's an immediate clash with the Indians, right? But what people don't realize is that that's not even the Mayflower, right? That's uh, like a, an, a, another voyage, I suppose. Um, that's, the, that's Jamestown. Okay, yeah, Jamestown. so so that's the earlier, okay. 1600-something, 03, yep. 09, something like that. Uh, and it continues. It, Jamestown continues for quite a while. Uh, and, and actually, the pilgrims in Plymouth know uh, of Jamestown. They've communicated with some of those English settlers. They have letters back and forth between the two. Some people who come to Plymouth are coming from Jamestown and actually fleeing the conflicts with the natives down there. Mm. But, but one of the things I should say is that uh, the eastern seaboard of uh, America is dotted with many, many different native cultures, and they consider themselves different kingdoms. So the kingdom of Massasoit, uh, the Wampanoag, uh, and they go by many names, Poconokets, uh, all sorts, that's a different kingdom from the Massachusetts or from the Powhatan that the Jamestown settlers oh. encounter. So they're different groups. They have different uh, motivations, different... It's like England and France and Germany and Spain. Right. I mean, each culture has their own flavor right. of type, what their desires are, what their motivations are. But there is a personality in there that is famous as Squanto. Wasn't Squanto part of this uh, Mayflower uh, that's right. history? So, that's right. And that's a, that's a kind of a famous, but it, it, along the lines of Pocahontas, mm-hmm. Squanto is, is just as famous in that story. Okay. That's right. And, and he has a little bit more truth uh, in, the co- in the American mythology uh, they get Squanto right, usually. Mm-hmm. Uh, Squanto is the the second man that the English meet who can speak English. Uh, so Samoset is the one who, who says, welcome Englishmen. Mm-hmm. And then he introduces them to Massasoit, and then he basically disappears. And no one, he probably goes home. Right. Back up to Maine. So then the That's an interesting story. To a man named Tisquantum, which they nickname him Squanto. Ah. Uh, he is a fascinating character. Someone needs to make a movie about him. He Disney early, movie. A yeah. few years earlier, uh, before the Mayflower lands at Plymouth, Squanto is captured by an English slaver named Thomas Hunt. He's basically a pirate. 
he mm. captures a number of natives in that area, John Smith's in the cousin. area, and sells them in Spain, in mm-hmm. Malaga, Spain. He sells them as slaves to a group of Spanish monks. Wow. Somehow, somehow, Squanto finds himself in London, where he's able to find a ship as, a, as an expeditionary scout headed back to his homeland, back to his <laughs> village, which is known as Patuxet. He finds his way back, and he escapes. And the next time that we see him is when uh, the pilgrims land, and they're introduced to him, and he is in Massasoit's custody, which may imply that he's a prisoner. Wow. Well, hold that now, thought. Hold that thought, yeah, Mateo, yeah, because sure. we're running out of time in this segment. And But this is fantastic. This is exactly what we were looking for. So when we get back from our break, we're going to let you take it back off right where you uh, had him as a prisoner, a political prisoner or whatever he was with the Massachusetts, whatever. So shows you my ignorance. But thank you guys for joining us. This is fan- fantastic and fascinating. We'll be right back after these messages. The Housing Hour with Kevin Ray continues, helping you understand what is really going on out there and what to do about it. Again, Kevin Ray. Welcome back into The Housing Hour. That is some original uh, music from the Indian tribe called Kanye West. I'm just kidding. Um, anyway, we're thankful for the Housing Hour listeners and for everybody out there that's uh, dialing in to us. And we're we're truly excited about our guest today. We're we're talking about Thanksgiving, what it means, um, what it doesn't mean, actually, and uh, talking about what it is that we're celebrating in a way that's very unique. And what we're talking about is the time period between 1620 and 1690, kind of in that realm when uh, we had the Mayflower land. And then think about it. This is amazing if you think of in terms of 100 years ago, even to our day. You know, it took from 1620 until 1776, which was the birth of America as we know it. And there was a lot of stuff that happened in between there. And then you can also think about it from this perspective. That's not a long time to be able to get to that point where you have the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, that's really actually a short period of time to create what is today the the freest and best country in the world. And just to think that the Mayflower Compact is the foundational structure of our Constitution, that's mm-hmm. in my opinion, and I yeah. think historians would agree. Would you agree with that? Uh, I, I would I would tentatively agree. I, I, think, uh, I think the Founding Fathers were probably not as well read on the pilgrims as we might think. Mm. Uh, uh, the pilgrims become uh, part of the national mythology uh, more towards the late 19th century. Uh, prior to that, and, and that's due to uh, the rise of nationalism and, and, and basically just our nation trying to figure out who we were at right. the time mm-hmm. uh, after the Civil War, trying to reestablish what it means to be an American. Right Bef- Before that, uh, people didn't really know much about Plymouth Colony. They didn't really uh, connect the dots. Maybe they didn't see the connections that we see now in hindsight. Mm. So I would say I'm sure it was influential. Um, I think but, there's a lot of other things that were also uh, that the founding fathers were also looking at. Well, the, I was thinking more of the ideals that set forth from the document and uh, just the, sure. the it, it kind of went through history. Mm-hmm. 
Sure, it, it definitely, as far as uh, English culture goes at the time, keep in mind, these people have a king, and every every European has a king. Right. And so for them to create uh, what they call civil body politic, in, as they say in the compact, uh, that is pretty interesting. It, it's not... Um, it's not illegal. It's not technically uh, breaking the law. Uh, they were not granted to create a government, however, uh, and that could have created some tensions. Uh-huh. But it seems to have passed over pretty pretty well with the crown. And, and keep in mind, these people are—they still consider themselves loyal members of of the 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 sovereign king, King and, James, and, and then King Charles. So. So we had some peace kind of going there for 70 years, you mentioned, and I'm sure there was ups and downs, and, and there was certainly a lot to deal with. But And then there was Thanksgiving. Yeah, the there, first was, thing. there was the first Thanksgiving. But over that 70-year period, you know, there was a lot of working out to do. And after 70 years, there was some turmoil that, that came upon us, and could you give us kind of a brief description of, of what set these events off? It's such a hard thing to do. We sure. only have a short period of time. But give sure. us just some sound bites. Yeah, so the King Philip's War, as this war is called, it's a war that is not very well known in the rest of, of the United States. It, it's known regionally in New England. And believe it or not, uh, because it takes place before the creation of the United States, it's not listed as a as a war that the United States fought in, mm-hmm. but technically speaking, it has the highest casualty rate per capita of any conflict on American soil. Wow! Uh, because of uh, about a third of the uh, New England colony is destroyed. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a massive number. Um, compare that to you know during World War II. I think less than one percent of uh, American citizens died. So we're talking a third of the population is gone uh, during the King Philip's War. It's a very brutal conflict. And and the uh, reason for that is because they their ideals begin to um, conflict, if you will, um, yes. with, with their king. Uh, or no? Well, the, the King Philip's War is fought between the Wampanoag natives okay. and the, the English settlers. Mm, okay. So it, it it doesn't involve the crown. Uh, it doesn't involve English. Uh, it's not a war between the English or any. These people keep in mind they're still English, mm-hmm. and they still consider themselves English. Um, the conflict begins uh, really in 1620. Uh, you have a foreign culture that moves into a place, and and the pilgrims and their descendants. Are uh, they're not going to stop, mm-hmm. and that's kind of the thing. They're going to grow and grow and grow, and they're not going to to stop that growth. And they start pushing against the boundaries of other uh, cultures, like the Wampanoag. And uh, some specific incidents are that uh, a lot of the English cattle mm-hmm. are uh, free ranging, and they eat uh, a lot of the crops that the natives grow. Mm-hmm. And and there's frequent accounts of uh, natives going to court complaining that English animals are eating their crops, and can you please you know fence them in, keep them out, 
you know, we're trying to uh, grow food here. Mm. And, and so that's a real source of conflict between the two. And uh, what it essentially is, it's just that the English uh, were expanding aggressively and we're never going to stop. And, uh, and the natives lived there and weren't going to go anywhere. So war was, uh, it, it was going to happen and it did happen. And it, like I said, it's per capita the worst war on U.S. soil. And you think about these two cultures colliding, and it took a long time for that collision to manifest itself in a it war. Did. But you know, you look at the at the motivation clearly of the Westerners and what it was that our idea was. We wanted to push west. <laughs> I mean, That's we right. we wanted to expand. And and you know what? It wasn't just the, it wasn't just the English. I mean, there were others that wanted to seize That's this right. opportunity, which which is when you know you go on into history and you start to see these other these other battles and these other kind of positioning themselves as well. So what happens when? Because you have the colonial population is estimated at fifty thousand, roughly in sixteen fifty, I suppose. That's um, right. And so what what happens? You have a, that's a lot of people. Mm-hmm. So talk talk me through what happens there. I mean, how how do they come to resolution? <laughs> So, uh, I mean, at the end of the war, the, the Wampanoag are defeated and essentially uh, consumed. Uh, they, they're, a number of them are sent to Bermuda as slaves. Mm-hmm. Um, a number of them are kept as uh, prisoners on Deer Islands, uh, just off of Boston Harbor. And the rest of them are uh, forced to um, either leave or uh, assimilate and uh it's it's pretty brutal it's a brutal conflict there's really no happy ending to it and uh it's something that a lot of people in the rest of the the u.s uh, don't know about it's not really taught yeah i don't see it on the timeline here and and the uh massasoit's son philip is the one that instigated this war is that well, he's he's the leader of the Wampanoag uh, during the war, and, and yes, there there is some some historians credit him with being the uh, you know the instigator. Uh, there's all different opinions, but he, his his native name is Metacom, and he is a he's a very controversial figure within the native community uh, within uh, the field of historians. He's he's a real interesting guy, and and that conflict is uh it's a really sad one there's a lot of uh really terrible things that happen on both sides a lot of cruelty and and barbarism and uh it's it's a sad thing but it is important to remember that there was 70 years of peace right and i I know that 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 kind of sounds silly knowing that there's a war later but 70 years of peace for two distinctly different cultures who speak different languages, they live different lifestyles, they, they have different religious beliefs. It's very, very fascinating. Well, they passed a treaty in 1621, kind of, right? That's right. They, so when the, when the pilgrims land, they, they're quickly, uh, they quickly realize that they're surrounded by other people. And what they do is they, they essentially uh, open themselves up to listen to whoever comes to them. And the person who comes to them is Massasoit mm-hmm. and, and the Wampanoag people. Massasoit basically offers them a military alliance so that the, the, the Wampanoag will protect the pilgrims and the pilgrims will protect the Wampanoag. Mm-hmm. And 
they sign a a treaty between kings between King Charles and and the Massasoit. Mm-hmm. So it's not a treaty between the pilgrims and the natives. It's a treaty between the natives and the English crown. Mm-hmm. And, and there was only how many? There was only a hundred and one English settlers on the Mayflower, right? Uh, I, yeah, yeah, about that. And and like I said, half of them die the first winter. Right. And then a few ships come in the next few years and unload mm-hmm. uh, more passengers. Right, right, right. So by the time of uh, 1627, the year that we portray at Plymouth Plantation, there's about 150 adults, I believe, and maybe 200 people altogether. Mm. But it, it's difficult to know. We know the number uh, roughly because they, they had um, what's called a cattle division. Uh, when they brought over livestock, they divided uh, each each uh, livestock amongst families, and they have them listed in a, in a census. Mm-hmm. So that's how we know how many people there were, and, and also how we know who was there. Uh, right. Literally, you know, family, name, uh, children. We, we know uh, quite a lot. And, and again, that's what sets Plymouth apart from some of the other uh, colonies, is that this place is very well documented. And if there wasn't this treaty, I mean, there's in all likelihood, you know, they would not have survived. Uh, no, no. If it, I mean, it needs to be said, if it wasn't for the protection of Massasoit and his people, the English would have certainly died. Uh, not only would they have died from starvation, but there were other native groups that did not like them and mm-hmm. that would have killed them. So, uh, and one of those groups was the Massachusetts and also the Narragansetts to the south. Those two groups did not, uh, they really didn't like uh, the English because of uh, prior uh, engagements that they had with other native explorers. Remember I mentioned that uh, Squanto was kidnapped by uh, uh, an English uh, slaver. Mm -hmm. Uh, So these people don't have the best opinion of English people. But yeah, because you mentioned he was actually sold into he, slavery. He absorbs them he was, into his uh, into his kingdom, essentially. So he was. You're talking about the gentleman who was sold into slavery and then came back and basically was one of the key people in, in all this. Right, right. That's right. He becomes the translator for for the Wampanoag. Uh, he basically becomes a, an ambassador between the two groups. Wow. And and he gets into trouble. Uh, because he he ends up actually using his position uh, for his own gain. Mm-hmm. He uh, he gets caught uh, misleading both Massasoit and the Pilgrims into thinking uh, certain things are happening that aren't happening. Political tells, positioning that we see today. Yeah. That's right. That's right. He tells uh, Massasoit and his people that the Pilgrims store plague in barrels beneath their houses mm. and that they can release it at any point to decimate uh, native people weapons of mass destruction yeah exactly well unfortunately this is so amazing and i want people to know how to get into contact with the good folks at plymouth plantation and you have been fascinating we really just thank you so much mateo for the time and the clear passion that you have and there's so much that you can do the first thing i want to point you guys out to is just the plymouth website it's plymouth.org and that's p-l-i-m-o-t-h.org and in there you're going to find a variety of uh pieces of information go to the housinghour.com and we're going to have that right up on our site mateo until next time we thank you 
Thank you so much. And for all of us at Mortgage Investors Group, thank you for all that you do for us. And we want to wish you a very happy Thanksgiving. And we'll see you next time right here on The Housing Hour. That's the Housing Hour with Kevin Ray for today. Join Kevin and his guests each week at this time to keep up with the why and the why not. You need to know, so come here to find out. This program is presented by Mortgage Investors Group.